Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and today I'm talking to a man who's out to change the way we think about mental health. Stéphane Grenier is a retired Lieutenant Colonel from the Canadian Armed Forces. He spent 29 years in the Army and many of those seeking to reform the way mental health care was approached. Today he's the founder of Mental Health Innovations, he's also a speaker and published author. His book, After the War, reflects on the time he spent in Rwanda during the country's civil war and all that came since. Here's his story. Stefan, you've spent over a decade in one form or another working at changing attitudes around mental health. Why is that? Well, of course, I uh, grew up in an era where mental health wasn't even something that was on any human being's radar unless you were a psychiatrist or psychologist. Uh, and so I joined the military, still was not on my radar. And as most Canadians who, who you know, fall through the cracks of the mental health system or who develop these conditions, you know, I've, you rarely meet a person who's developed a mental health problem, struggled through it, recovered, who doesn't want to do something, right, to, to help somebody else. And so my motivation was not unlike any other Canadian who goes through this and who says, I ought to do something about this. This is ridiculous. So same sort of motivation. Say, how can we, how can we change the way things are? Because the status quo is, is not working, right? And right. so uh, it's through my own experience, I guess. Uh, well, let's talk about your experience. You spent 29 years in the military, uh, retired lieutenant colonel. How did you get into the Army in the first place? Was it a family thing? Were, what was driving you to get involved there? Not at all. Um, French-Canadian family, you know, grew up, uh, you know, in Labrador. My dad was a construction worker, grew up in uh, as a Francophone in English community in Pierrefonds, Montreal, not a military person in my family, not of, you know, so no connections there. I think, uh, you know, I can't even remember what drew me to the military, really. Um, you know, people would say sense of adventure, things like that. I grew up watching, you know, uh, a series called the 10,000 day war, which was all about the Vietnam war, you know, and sort of looking at that. And I, I don't think that Vietnam war sort of drew me to the military, but that's the only thing that I remember having an impact on me and thinking, wow, you know, this is, this is, this might be an interesting way to live your adult life. Mm -hmm. So what did you sign up for when you got in? Uh, what, what was your plan of what you were going to be within uh, the armed forces? It's interesting you say that because along, uh, so in the military, we have what we call career managers. And these are the people who say, hey, you know, if you want to get promoted, do this exam, you know, uh, do this. Uh, I recommend you try. And uh, in my entire 29-year career, while most officers see their career managers once a year, I, I saw my career manager twice in 29 years. I, you know, you're going to say, wow, what a loser. But <laughs> I had no plan, right? I did not have a plan for me that I want to be a general or a colonel by the age of 25, right? I uh, just lived my life, did the best I could, and good things happened to me, right? And uh, it's it's ironic because I, I know some colleagues of mine who had it all figured out, and they ended up being so disappointed, right? I had nothing figured out, and I was sort of pleased and happy how it turned out, right? So interesting. What was your understanding before deployment of, of mental health and uh, the kinds of prevalence of mental health you might see in the armed forces, what you might expect to come back from a tour of duty 
uh, and the sorts of things people tend to wrestle with. What, what did you know about it at the time? Nothing. Nothing. Zero. That's the way it was, right? And so, and and similar understanding of of just uh, the language around mental health. I mean, what what were your own perceptions around uh, the profession, or or what it meant to to have mental health issues at the time? Uh, again, you know, before I went to Rwanda in 1994, there was no words, no no feelings, no thoughts of mental ill health, right? Uh, and it was just completely off the radar, right? Hmm. Uh, and and it, it's interesting you asked that because I've never really thought about that. But now that you're asking me, it's interesting how it was all about, you know, when I grew up in the military in my early days, it was all about the Cold War, uh, the Russians, <laughs> hmm. uh, northern flank of Europe, which our brigade was was tasked by NATO to deploy in, in the Norway area, right? That was, that was the thing. And, um, you know, uh, physical injuries were the thing also. I remember every year, you know, we would do first aid training and we would simulate casualties and all this thing. But along the lines of the mental, there was zero, zero, zero training or uh, that I can remember anyways. Right. 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 So the understanding just wasn't there at the time to prepare anybody for that. And it's interesting because, you know, if you look at the military, the history of post-traumatic stress disorder and all this, it, it does come from the massive amount of troops from the U.S. returning from Vietnam in the 80s. So here here we were, you know, with, with our country just south of the border uh, dealing with thousands, 50, hundreds of thousands of veterans affected by a condition, a lot of psychiatric research, a, a new diagnostic term, but north of the border, you know, nothing. Yeah. So we, we weren't learning from what was going on just to the south of us. We weren't paying attention or, or it, it wasn't Allegedly making its way not. up here. Yeah. <laughs> Allegedly not. <laughs> That's right. How did you end up going to Rwanda? So it was a Wednesday morning. I was, uh, I was a staff officer at National Defense Headquarters in Ottawa on a Wednesday morning. Uh, and of course, Rwanda was a French-speaking uh, uh, African country, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the commanding officer there was General Romeo Dallaire, francophone as well. And um, you know, uh, the deputy chief of defense staff in in a meeting I would attend as a backbencher, you know, sort of these low-ranking people that are there to take notes and make everything happen after these big meetings. So the deputy chief of defense staff, I remember, turned around and says. You know, do we have a francophone here that can uh, go help uh, Romeo there? And uh, looked at me and said, "You're a francophone, so get yourself." And I was already pre-screened to go to Haiti at the time. It was a, a an imminent deployment to Haiti, so some of us had already received our inoculations, our shots, and we were sort of on standby to go to. Haiti. So instead of flying to Haiti, I flew to Rwanda, and I flew the two days later on a, on a Friday. Two days after being told, and and was there. On your part, was it apprehension? Was it excitement? Was there nerves? What What were you thinking as you were being sent off to Rwanda? No, I think that this is true of, of I, I would say, the vast majority of the military mindset and, and what what inhabits, you know, the military culture is you're in the military. Uh, not, no military person wants to go to war, right? Hmm. But everybody has a realistic sense that these things happen and if if you're called upon this is this is what you're there to do right so there's no there's no apprehension i think there's no fear there's no excitement there's okay my turn's up so it's my time to it's 
my time to go out there and perform, right? And right. because the ultimate, it's the sort of the ultimate performance check, right? Um, now, of course, we don't, we did not train during the Cold War to do peacekeeping, of course, but it was, you know, a, a very, uh, as as the old saying goes, right? Peacekeeping is no job for a soldier, but a job only a soldier can do, right? Mm. And and so, uh, yeah, so there was, uh, and I think, you know, for, for civilians, sometimes they think, oh my God, these people, but the military mindset is all like that. This is just not me. You know, I speak on behalf of all my former colleagues in the military. Right. So it's, it's duty. It's duty for you. Absolutely. Yeah. That's right. What was your role to be when you were serving in Rwanda? So my role initially was to bring uh, some, because of course it was a big, big issue was unfolding in Rwanda. General Dallaire was trying to muster the international community to care about what was happening in his tiny part of the world where things were unfolding rapidly. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you had Bosnia, who was, you know, uh, the attention of the world uh, was was focused on on Bosnia. Uh, and as devastating as things were in Bosnia, you know, from from General Dallaire's perspective, it was pretty bad in Rwanda too. So, of course, he was trying to muster the international community to pay attention there. So my, my initial task was was to bring some media because uh, expatriates had left the country. It was pretty dire out there. And my initial task was to bring media there so that they could, you know, tell the world what was happening in that tiny part of, of, uh, of the world. And so this media, this would have been like Reuters and, and the BBC or, or are we talking what, what kind of media? Canadian media, actually. Canadian, yeah. Uh, the, yeah, the Canadian Broadcast Corporation, French and English. I believe the Globe and Mail was there. Uh, and uh, I forget, but yeah. essentially a very small team of. And of course, that happened really, really quickly, right? On a Wednesday. So to have people the, to accompany me, basically escorting them there to you know, tell the world what was going on there was uh, was very fast. And so it was uh, mustered half a dozen people and we, we took off. You arrive in May 1994. It's a torrential downpour. What is going through your head as the plane's wheels hit the ground and, and you see what uh, what's in store? Yeah, so uh, of course, you know, I had traveled to other parts of the world. I had been, you know, in the Caribbean once or twice. And you kind of, you know, you know, it rains more in those places than it does. But I had never been to the African continent. Uh, And uh, I I remember thinking, oh, my God, you know, the deployment starts and our kit is completely wet. And of course, you know, it's not a priority to stay dry, but, you know, no soldier wants to start a deployment somewhere being completely drenched, right? If, if you do, then you, you, uh, you have, a, have a weird sense of <laughs> comfortable, right? So, of course, there's that. And, and of course, that got overshadowed really quickly by, by gunfire and the fact that the Hercules, you know, aircraft that had brought us in, essentially, you know, of course, it stopped while we unloaded, but you know, figuratively speaking, it didn't stop very long. Those pallets were ejected off. Our stuff was thrown on the tarmac and it, it took off. And of course, when it landed back in, in Nairobi, there were some holes in, in, in the aircraft, right? Mm-hmm. And so reality hit fast, fast and hard that this was very hostile. So regardless of the fact that a ceasefire was always brokered, between the belligerents and the UN to allow these Canadian Hercules aircrafts to land. And by the way, the Canadian Herc 
pilots were the only pilots in the world flying into the war zone, right? Uh, and it was the only lifeline for the UN peacekeeping operation and the only lifeline to get any casualties out of the country, right? Mm. And of course, you had Médecins Sans Frontières and, and the ICRC who were treating patients all over the place in Kigali and all this stuff. But uh, for UN uh, peacekeepers who would get injured, the only lifeline was this this one Canadian herc who would fly in twice a day if, if the ceasefires were brokered. And of course, you know, you have this sort of uh, notion of a ceasefire and peacekeeping and all this, and then reality hits, and it's not at all what what uh, what we dream about, right? Right. So, what is what is the reality then when you get there compared to the the visions you might have of what you're going to be doing? You know, whether it's peacekeeping or or just serving out, uh, doing doing as you're told, to what you end up having to face there. Well, I think it's not unlike any other lesson you learn as you grow into adulthood and you experience life, right? Where there's always a plan. And then, you know, whether you're taking your family to to Florida on a vacation or, you know, you always start out with a plan and then the plan goes right out the window because situations, things happen. And next thing you know, you, you can't really execute the plan. So I think that, you know, there was probably a realization very early on that we're gonna just have to go with the flow here and a plan's a plan's a plan, and you know the military prides itself on 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 planning extremely well, but as well at being very adroit and being flexible and adapting to the situation on the ground. And and again, you know, I don't think there was a a huge epiphany there. There was mm-hmm. just okay, this is how it is, right? And I think I think you know joining the army at a young age, being indoctrinated fairly early on in my career as as a combat arms officer, you know. The training in the military is second to none. And it's not about being in the military. It creates leaders and people that are extremely flexible and capable of thinking on their feet. And it's something that I think is missing in a lot of organizations to to a certain extent. But I I don't remember being shocked at all. Hmm. You've called uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, or at least what your experience of, of what you're not sure whether it is post-traumatic stress or not, uh, but you've, you've called it death by a thousand paper cuts. How was that playing out as you were in Rwanda, the, the sorts of things that you were seeing and how that took its toll through time? Yeah, so I think, I, I think that when I look back, you know, of course there were a couple of major events that took place while I was out there that probably really tipped the scale on the, on the scale of uh, that was a really bad day. But at the same time, there were many, many other smaller scale events that isolated one another from, from, a, from one another would, would not be a big deal. But it's the realization that the cumulative stress and the cumulative fatigue does impact the brain at one point, right? And, and a colleague of mine does call it death by a thousand paper cuts. And I really agree with that analogy because you know, often when we talk about trauma, which I think we do way too much of in Canada, we always want to look for the smoking gun, the event, the one incident that caused somebody to keel over or decompensate or, or, or become affected. When in fact, you know, that, that could literally be a red herring, right? There could be just that accumulation of, of events and smaller items that really create what I call moral conflict and, and that, that whole piece. 
and which is why at the end of my book, I talk about the fact that I don't think I have PTSD. I, I, I'm not saying I'm, I'm fine, but mm-hmm. I, PTSD has become a very convenient uh, diagnosis, uh, a catch-all. And, um, and not that I'm trying to act tough or, or anything like that, but I don't remember being traumatized over there. I really don't. Bad things happened. We had, we had close calls. You know, was I disturbed? Yes. Was I upset at times? Yes. Was I traumatized? No. And we, we are now living in a society of, you know, fast food and everything is quick, quick, quick. And now I think the domain of psychiatry is making a mistake by, by allowing itself to lump everything under a very, very generic term where we assume everybody that goes through hardship is now traumatized. Hmm. And I think that's a that's a major mistake, and uh, that's that's what I would like to see change as we move forward. What do you think it is then that we're missing out on, or or how would you like to see definitions either broadened or or maybe it's more specific in some cases that maybe we're being too broad and we should be looking more at individual factors. Yeah, so I I think that you know, and I I, I don't want to pretend that I know better, right? So mm. I, I I hope that these comments come with a degree of humility, but at the same time, you know, many researchers or scientists and clinicians and, and will say, you know, when you deal with a non-clinician, a non-academic, a guy like me, right, who's been through the university of life, basically you're dealing with a guy who is, is, is making assumptions and reaching conclusions based on a total experience of one individual, either himself, right? Mm-hmm. And, and of course, it's it's very it's, it's very true, right? In, in most cases, in my case, it's slightly a little different because over the last eighteen years, I've I've dealt with, you know, I, I I don't have a count, but you know, at one point we were supporting through our program five to six thousand individuals, and since I left the military. I, I continue to be in touch with so many people. So while it's not part of any research program or anything like that, what I found is that there's a very common thread of experience where it's not hard for me to have a conversation with a law enforcement officer, a first responder in Canada, in any part of the world. And the minute I run my theory about, were you ever traumatized? You know, And the answer is, well, no, not really. You know, And, and we start talking about it the new sort of vision of, of, of what is going on into the minds of uniform personnel or what we currently call trauma-exposed workplaces, right? Mm-hmm. Fire, police, paramedics, military. The conversation doesn't have to go on very long for people to turn around and go, I never saw it like that. Oh, my God, this is so true. I was presenting last week in a police force, and I had the deputy chief of police, the police union there, I had psychologists, I had, you know, uh, a whole slew of leaders and clinicians, and I had 20 minutes to present my point of view. Next thing you know, people are off their chair thinking, we got to talk about this. This is something that we need to look at seriously, right? In other words, not everything is trauma, and we need to look, we need to broaden our view of what happens to our human beings when we expose them to the types of events and situations that uniform people are faced with every day when they're either deployed as a military person or every day on the streets of Toronto and Montreal and Ottawa and so on and so forth. So 
you know, I find it very interesting. And rare are the clinicians who disagree. But what's difficult is to mobilize an entire system. Then we have to ask ourselves, what are we doing when we diagnose somebody as being traumatized when they're not? And we say that they have post-traumatic stress disorder and apply treatment modalities to that, that, that ailment when, in fact, they may not have PTSD. They might have something else. You know, if I have a broken leg and you, you put a cast on my, my arm, my leg is not going to heal. I know it's a very blunt analogy, but at the same time, I know enough to know that psychiatric treatments are very, very precise, right? It is an art, but it's, it's an educated art. And, and so now I do know that uh, people are paying attention to what I've called 18 years ago, the moral injury, right? People can be morally injured. Now researchers are paying attention to that, and I think that's a step in the right direction. What is a moral injury? Essentially, you know, when you are confronted with situations where you are either powerless or you uh, w what you're witnessing, what you're asked to do or what you're asked not to do conflicts in a in a not a mild way, but a moderate to severe way with your own values, your own belief systems. Hmm. At the end of the day, it just doesn't feel right. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, ordering a hot dog and, and you really wanted Coca-Cola and they didn't have it and you're upset because it's Pepsi Cola. No, th that's not a moral injury. What I'm talking about is a civilian example for your, your listeners to, to understand this is what if you're a human resource person who works in a, in a large company who has to lay off 500 employees? Do we really believe that these HR people feel good about doing the file reviews, assessing who should be maintained as an employee and who should be fired and, and so on and so forth? Right. Now, that would say that's a mild to moderate, right? And of course, you can take 10 HR practitioners. Out of the 10, two might not really care. Uh, two might care too much. And others will be uh, along that spectrum, right? And, and so for those who are, are really disturbed by what they have to do, which is fire 500 people and go home every night feeling like, oh, my God, I really don't feel good because I met Bob at the cafeteria and I just had reviewed Bob's file and I'm uh, about to fire him, right? Mm -hmm. So. There are so many situations where and that doesn't mean the company doesn't needs to stop what they're doing. It means we have to have a better understanding of the mental health impact of how we do business, what we do, our decisions, and look after the people who execute those things. Let's go back to your time in Rwanda for a moment. Uh, you, you're serving for 10 months. That's the time length you're there. How often are you sustaining what you would describe as a, as a moral injury? That's a fair question. I would say, you know, there were probably periods of time where it would happen a little more often. But as an average, I would say every couple of weeks or every three weeks, roughly, mm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, something would happen which would cause me to look back and say, that was a weird day, right? Or that, what the hell happened here? I can't believe that, right? And sometimes it's it's just surprising things. I remember this, and this, I don't think this was one of the thousand paper cuts, but I remember our our unit doctor, Doctor Boucher, really nice guy. He was a friend of mine, and uh, we we you know have a meal every once in a while together. And uh, you know, one day I talked to him. I said, "Oh my God, we how did you fix this person?" So this woman, this is way after the war ended. This woman had walked I don't know how many kilometers. 
probably not hundreds of kilometers, but dozens and dozens of kilometers with a hammer in her head, stuck in her head. Right? So something had happened, you know, and the hammer was literally stuck in her head and scar tissue had grown around it because she had been attacked during the genocide and survived and woke up and became conscious again. And, and she walked herself to Kigali three weeks after the war ended because she had heard that there was a Canadian hospital there and somebody could help. Right mm -hmm. now, I don't think that's a moral injury. It's, it's nothing really, but it's like, Oh my God, I, I had no clue. Somebody could survive a blow to the head with a hammer. Right. Right. And, and, and this, this, again, this is not an example of a moral injury. But I think when you accumulate all those things together, it creates sort of a perfect storm of you're sort of disturbed at one point, right? You accumulate so many of these these images and these experiences where your your sense of normal is definitely skewed. But are you traumatized? I don't think so. I don't think I was. Right? When does that perfect storm manifest for you? You come home. You know, it's it. You've 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 done your time in Rwanda. You come back home. When do you start to realize that you haven't really, maybe you've you know physically left Rwanda, but mentally you're you're still kind of processing things and and sorting through those ten months. So I think that without the clarity of hindsight, probably two three months after returning, starting to realize something's bizarre. Right, something bizarre is happening to me, or what's going on? But with the clarity of hindsight, the day I opened the door, right, the day I opened the door, and my kids greeted me in, in their pajamas because it was an evening. Uh, with the clarity of hindsight, at that moment, I sort of knew, right. But of course, I didn't because I didn't have the that clarity of hindsight. Hmm. And and so. Fast forward then two, three months from then, what what's going on then in your life when you do start to realize it at the time as things are happening? Well, you know, I, I think uh, uh, something that happens to most human beings is, you know, you take a trip somewhere you've never been to and you spend a bit of time overseas or you spend a time on a trip and you come back and, and you know, you, it's on your mind a lot, right? Because you've been there, you've experienced things, you've eaten great fruits, you've seen palm trees, you've visited a zoo, and these images are in your head. And and uh, you're quite happy to revisit those images. You tell the story to people and all this, you know, but but, but after a few weeks, you know, life kicks back in and you, you don't forget about your trip to Tampa Bay or, or Cuba. But it's it's not prominent in your brain, right? And you you move on. You replace that with your new norm. When that new when the new norm cannot reinitiate itself and connect itself, uh, and, and these images are constantly sort of you know invading uh, your mind, not in a again not in a traumatizing way, but a, a bit of a disturbing way, where you say, okay, well I got to focus here, right? And and your focus is taken off because a thought, a smell, or something that comes back, uh, that's that's a little disturbing, right? And and your, it takes your concentration off things. I remember feeling mixed up like a bag of nails, you know, on a good day, right? Having difficulty concentrating, having uh, a very, very short temper, being impatient because I thought everything here was so futile, right? Now, some people say, well, that's readjustment disorder. Well, again, I think it's kind of a, a dumbed down way of just lumping things into to, to a category 
And uh, people say, well, it's normal you have that. Right? But what about after a couple of years? Is that still normal? Uh, so when when is when is normal not happening, right? Mm. And so it's all these little things. And and of course, you know, human beings are resilient, as as unwell as you might be. Uh, most people struggle through it. They fight through it. They go to work and they suck it up. But most times, the family pays for the price, right? It's the family life that erodes first, not the work life. Although at work, I was getting myself in trouble at times, right? Because I was a bit belligerent and I was not, uh, uh, so, uh, but of course we know that the families give up a lot, right? Mm. This whole equation. There's a moment, uh, speaking of the family, there's a moment when you're back home, your equipment comes back and you're cleaning things out on your driveway. What happens there? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, so when, when military people come back home, they come back with sort of the bare essentials, and uh, the rest of the military gear gets shipped through, you know, military cargo, and you get called, and you go to the airport, you pick it up, and then you bring it home, and you sort it out, right? And uh, to me, what happened there that day is it was a, a nice summer day, and uh, it was warm outside, and my kids were sort of puttering. We, we lived on a dead-end street, so, you know, the kids could putter in the street, and you know, I would, nobody was fearful of them getting hit by a car. And Veronique, my daughter, was on her tricycle. And, and, and the contrast of me cleaning my boots in the driveway and, uh, and Veronique, you know, my daughter, uh, was very young on a tricycle. The, the two realities being so close to each other, because, of course, you know, over there is not something I would have wanted to ever expose my kids to as a father, as a parent, as, you know, and, and now the two were within, you know, 10 feet of each other, these two realities. Right. Hmm. And I remember becoming more upset than anybody should ever be upset at the fact that I'm cleaning my boots. Right. And of course the boots had, had a bit of soil on it now, you know, customs and immigration and, and, uh, you know, would not be happy with that, but that, that just happened. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, and, and of course the soil from Rwanda is very red, not because of the blood or, or that, but the soil is indeed red. And of course here there's red soil going down the drain and the daughter's there. And again, you know, it, again, that's not traumatizing. It's just, it's just very upsetting that these two realities are in close proximity of each other when, when in theory they should never, these realities, these worlds should never collide. Mm. Uh, yeah. What was the moment, if it was a moment, or the accumulation of moments when you decided you really needed help uh, for what you had been going through? Well, definitely uh, the day after a close call, where I, I you know, uh, the the evening before, I had, uh, you know, had a bit of a flash where I started accelerating towards a pole uh, on my way back to work one evening, uh, and sort of snapping myself out of that. That next morning, I knew something was wrong, and that was, you know, a couple of months after my return, and went went in to seek some kind of care, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so definitely at that time, but you know, there were many, many false starts in my my attempts to seek help and get help, and you know, often people blame the system, right? And as much as I will say that the help I received early on was probably not as adequate as it should have been, I was equally part of the, the, the partnership here, why it wasn't working. I wasn't accepting that I, I needed help. Really, I was going for help because I didn't know what else to do. Hmm. But I really had not sort of 
hoisted aboard the fact that because again there was no narrative there was no understanding right so i i had no clue i didn't even know how to articulate what was going on with me you know uh so um and i say that this also applies to today right uh, people who are going through mental hardship mental health conditions struggles whatever you want to call them uh, they're an equal partner in that recovery, right? We just can't abdicate as Canadians, as, as citizens, as people, as human beings. We can't abdicate our mental health recovery to the good doctor and say, well, fix me, right? Mm. Uh, unlike, well, not unlike, you know, you break a leg, you have to kind of work at it. You have to you have to use those crutches as much sure. as it, you have to use those crutches. If you don't use the crutches, you put too much weight on it. Guess what? Those bones might not fuse as well, right? But but I think because the work is so intangible with, with mental health recovery, and, and it's really difficult to grasp, what do I need to do here? Very, very complex. You sort of, ab we abdicate to the system, right? And we say, uh, fix me. And, and this, is, this is why I'm, I'm such an advocate of social support and peer support as the third leg of the, the stool, right? I say to recover, you, it's like a three-legged stool. You, you need good clinical care. Some people need pharmacology, you know, mm -hmm. medication. But that third leg of the stool, everybody needs that. It's social support and understanding that they're not the only ones to ever experience this. It's a very isolating journey to recover from. And, and while physical injuries will, will probably recover with or without hope, a leg will heal from its, its broken bones, whether you feel hopeful or not. But the mind doesn't recover as easy if there's no hope. Mm. And, and, and the only way truly, and this is evidence-based now, we know this, the only way to provide peer support. I do want to talk more about this, but I want, to, I want to talk briefly about the time when you go in to get help for the first time. There's a concept in the military called sick parade. Uh, can you tell me about that? About, first of all, the attitude. I mean, you'd already talked about how that, you know, there really wasn't an understanding of mental health certainly before you left for Rwanda. Uh, but, but if you can talk about what sick parade is like and, and what you had to face going in to get help for the first time. Yeah, I never liked the word sick parade, but essentially, yeah, you, you show up at the, the, you know, the medical clinic on base or, you know, uh, because, you know, the military is like a provincial system, right, where we have doctors, lawyers, you know, cooks, uh, you know, pilots, we have all, we have it all, right? And we have our own healthcare system. So when you're on a base or when you're in the military and you, you have a cold or you, you sprain an ankle or whatnot, you, you know, if you can wait, if it's an emergency, you go right away. But if you can wait the next day, just like, you know, civilians do, they, they wait till the next morning and they show up at the clinic at, at opening time, you show up at opening time and the only difference is that you fill out some paperwork, right? So you put your name, your rank, your serial number, all this stuff. Hmm. And there's a little piece of uh, of the form that says what's wrong with you. It's, it says diagnosis, right? This mm -hmm. is where I, I sprained my ankle or I, I don't know, I got a cold or I, my sore throat, right? And so when I, when I went there that morning, I, I filled out the paperwork, but I didn't put anything in that box because, I number one, I didn't know what to put. And... Uh, and because I didn't have the the words for it, right? And so the poor uh, medic that was there behind the counter looked at the paperwork and he did his job, right? He's essentially, sir, you you know you have to put down why you're here, and and that upset me because on the one side I was embarrassed, and on the other side I didn't know what to write. 
And so he insisted just doing his job. And I, I kind of lost it. I, and, and I'm, you know, I wasn't the, the best, you know, leader in the military or the nicest guy on the planet, but you know, I wasn't a bully or anything like that. And I lost it with him. And I, I let him know that, you know, if he didn't let me see a doctor, he'd see me back here in a body bag. Right. And, and sort of said things that I, as I was saying them, I was regretting saying mm-hmm. things. And, and that, and, and those moments I had, moments like that where it wasn't me speaking it was this other person and thinking my god it's stop it don't say things like that right and and i think that's again a manifestation of of the struggle right um and and i eventually saw somebody of course and and that backfired but it it, it was partly because of me right Mm. it's just the system those moments uh early on that embarrassment you're feeling did you feel like you were the only one at the time going through that had you had you realized that your peers were probably experiencing something similar i realized that only maybe nine months later six months later i forget the chronology the exact chronology but yeah at the time i was certainly thinking and by the way most people who go through these situations despite the fact that you know academically or theoretically or or, you, you know, we know we're not the only ones, but in your mind, you think you're the only one. And mm-hmm. really, you are, right? Because what you're going through is very unique, right? And fine. Um, but certainly at the time, yeah, I thought I was the only one. I, I, I just didn't know that this existed, right? Now with the Bell Let's Talk campaign and everything else happening in social media, well, you, you think that if people still think they're the only people going through these situations, then there's something wrong with them. And there you go. There is something mm-hmm. Right. And so the very part of your human anatomy that computes all this information is sick. Right. Right. Isolation sets in whether you're knowledgeable about this or not. Right. So uh, somebody who develops depression next week, who's been who works at Bell Canada for all I care and who's part of the Bell Let's Talk will have a tendency to isolate themselves. Most people, not all. Right. I think. Yeah. But it's part of the illness, right? Yeah. So tell me then, in your experience, when you realized peer support was there, or or what your first experience with peer support was, uh, where where that support circle came from for you? So to me, to me, it was well, it was uh, you know with uh, Mike Arsenault, there, a colleague of mine who was working in the office, and at, at one point I remember, you know, he he sort of knew something was up because. He had been through a similar situation after coming out of Sarajevo as one of the, well, the first battalion to go into Sarajevo when troops deployed there from Germany in the early 90s. And uh, so he had gone through his own issues and had sought help and was taking pills to get some sleep. And he knew I wasn't sleeping. And of course, you know, peer support's not about telling people to go get pills. But in this case, he said, Steph, Jesus, you look tired all the time. What's wrong with you? We had a conversation and and over the, the, the on coming weeks, I, I guess we spoke some more, and I said or did something, and I remember him having a very blunt conversation with me and say, you know what, you're driving us nuts there. You you're gonna have to go see somebody, and mm-hmm. it was that bluntness, that connection, that raw connection of authenticity and the bluntness. He wasn't being rude. He was just being true and frank, right? He wasn't pitter pattering around me like most people were, probably because he knew what it felt like, right? And so that was, in a very authentic, organic way, my first encounter with this phenomena, which for the last 18 years, I've been trying to clone that, right? And of course, I'm not the only one on the planet. I mean, next week in Calgary, 
there's a massive gathering of, of peer supporters from mm-hmm. Canada, from New Zealand, from Australia, from the States, uh, in Calgary. And, and so I, by no stretch of the imagination, created this. But to me, I was discovering it for the first time. And this was 18 years ago. And I, have, uh, I uh, as well as so many other people, are trying to get you know, recognition for this essential service. This is not a nice to have. This is essential. It's mm-hmm. essential for people, right, who are trying to recover from these conditions. What was the big breakthrough, if it was peer support or something else, that things started to click for you and you did feel like uh, you were making some progress in getting to uh, a better place or a semblance of of yourself? So I, I think what people need to understand is that recovery doesn't occur in isolation of everything else happening in one's life. Recovery from mental health happens within the fabric of of how you live your life, where you go to work every day, and so on and so forth. So if you have to smuggle yourself into the doctor's office, embarrassed that anybody's going to see you, hope that your boss won't find out, right? The the propensity for you to recover positively and 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 it is is a lot lower than if you have that support, that group of people around you, either as peer supporters or work colleagues that are non-judgmental, that will support you, like you know, regardless of what's going on or within limits, of course, they will they will support you, right? So, the the game changer for me is that after several years of you know, false starts and, and trying to recover and trying to seek help. And that wasn't working. You know, my boss at the time, Chris Corrigan, took me aside, had a meeting with me. And in my own words, and of course, I did not need permission from my boss to start recovering. But the way he spoke to me was as a, a leader, as a human, as a caring person, as somebody who, who, what I heard that day is, you're important to me, you're important to this organization. And we want you, I want you to take the time you need to, to, to recover. And whatever I need to do to support you, I will do, right? Mm. When those words are followed by tangible action, demonstrating that the person means that, now you can access care and now care is going to start working. If you go to the doctor and every time you go back to the workplace, the workplace kicks you right where it hurts without even knowing it. Of course, you're going to take years to recover or you're going to go on long-term disability or the doctor is going to put you on sick leave for a long time because he needs to shelter you from the workplace, which is, you know, so, so, you know, people don't recover in their doctor's offices. They recover in their families, they recover in society, and they recover at work. And these three parts are essential to the recovery of most people, right? And we forget those parts. And so our men, our mental health system keeps focusing all the attention and all the funding to clinical care and pharmacology, right? And lowering, you know, the weight lines and all this stuff. And, and, and we're ignoring those social determinants of mental health. We're not ignoring them completely. We get, you know, the system, you know, the governments give a few dollars here and there to community organizations and mental health. Mm-hmm. You know, that significantly changes and we gain that necessary capacity to support Canadians through their recovery. Things will not change. People will continue to die at larger and increased rates of suicide and and mental illness will continue to plague more and more Canadians. And this is just going to get worse. Hiring more doctors is not the only solution here. And until our politicians recognize that, we will continue to have the same result. 
you know, the other part about recovery is that it, it's often misunderstood that recovery may not always may not always happen. You may not get back to exactly what you once were, but there is resilience. Could you speak about maybe your own experience where you found uh, yourself falling in the line or maybe coming to terms with resilience uh, versus a, a full recovery? Well, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people who define recovery differently, but generally speaking, you know, being in recovery doesn't mean that you're cured, right? Hmm. Uh, these are my own words, right? And, sure. and some people with more education might might argue with me and wordsmith a little bit, but I see a very big difference between recovery and cured. Uh, and I think a lot of people go about their lives with carrying some baggage of some sort that doesn't mean they can't live a happy life a productive life uh, an honest life you know uh, be good parents be good co-workers siblings uh, parents and so this is this is not unlike this situation right and i remember years ago being in Boyle's office where you know i, I felt like oh, we're going to talk about this for the next 12 years here and i said to him is this as good as it gets doc and uh, he said, pretty much, Steph, you know, and that day I said, you know what, I can deal with that, you know, so am I going to get, you know, sad every once in a while? Am I going to get upset? Yeah, but you know what? Who doesn't really? And I'm not minimizing my situation, but at the same time, at one point, I think it's important to accept, you know, am I capable of, um, am I I'm accepting the fact that this is it, but accepting that as opposed to for me anyways, constantly looking for exactly how it was before. And for me, when I accepted that, I thought, okay, I now know what I got to do. And when I relapse a little bit or I have a hard time, I got to be patient with myself, right? I got to give me some time right? and, and, and so on and so forth. And everybody lives that recovery differently. Uh, and that's okay as well. Any final words from you, Stefan? No, I think that uh, after 18 years, I often wonder, you know, how many more years am I going to keep going this where, you know, nobody seems to be listening, but that's okay, right? I mean, <laughs> one day, one day, some person with authority and a bit of power uh, will, will put it all together and uh, maybe start um, paying attention to, to this. And by the way, some, some jurisdictions in Canada are paying attention to this. There are provinces in this country, namely uh, some provinces out east, I'm very proud to say are are actually uh, investing uh, time, quality, effort. Uh, you know, and and by the way, I think all jurisdictions in Canada are trying something, some form of social support, peer support for the mental health system, but it just doesn't seem like they're as serious as they need to be, right? So the final word would be keep at it, right? Don't let little failures or little speed bumps along the way uh, hinder your ability as a province, a provincial healthcare system to keep moving and building that capacity. This is a game changer. And, and we know this through the Senate report from Mike Kirby in the day, right? When he created the mental health commission of Canada, there's so much information on peer support. We now need to create a scaled up version and, and really allow every Canadian who's struggling access to that service. Thank you for your time, Stefan. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you enjoyed the show, you can do me a favor. Hit subscribe, leave a rating and a review, and most of all, 
pass it on to someone else you think might enjoy the podcast. If you want to stay in touch, there are a few ways you can. You can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. Or follow me on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time.